The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. Alright, it's that time, back again on the Sour Hour. Twice in a week, Scott. I'm working overtime here. And I just saw you a couple nights ago. Yeah. You want to just stay in my guest room and we'll just hang out every day. It's a great time to go in the pool, that's for sure. Yeah. The dog <laughs> days of summer. That voice you hear is Scott. Hey, Scott. Hello. I'm your host, Jay. We're at the Brewing Network Studios in lovely today, downtown Concord. Uh, no Bevo today. But we do have an extra person in the studio related to our main guest tonight, which is uh, Allagash Brewing Company. And we're going to speak to our good friend Jason Perkins in a bit. But want to first introduce the person who's here live in the flesh and brought us the beer. So hello to Aaron Nelson. Hello, everyone. Thank you uh, for having us here today. Very excited to uh, talk to both you and Jason about uh, some Allagash and some sour beers. And hopefully you enjoy the treats that I brought for you today. Aaron brought these treats in an Allagash branded cooler. Yeah, yeah. From not too far away, right? You live by here. I live about a mile away down the road, so it's uh, one of my favorite spots to grab a, a cold beer in the afternoon. For me, it's just a recording studio. I cannot say whether or not it <laughs> serves beer commercially. It's out of the converted kegerator, <laughs> and the man enjoys a cold one from time to time. I think you all know the score at this point, but yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of great uh, Allagash beer in the building right now, even besides the bottles that we have in the studio. So I can't wait. Thanks for bringing them, and thanks for being here, Aaron. So let's get to some housekeeping stuff off the top, and then I, I say we just dive right in. I'm with things, you. Guys. Yep. All right. So we, I, as I said, tonight's guest is Allagash. We're always looking for more questions uh, from our listeners so if you'd like email us during the week scott at the brewing network.com jay at the brewing network.com you can normally watch us but no bevo today so usually it's at the brewing network.com slash tv you can listen live as always on the brewing network app search bn mobile please subscribe that really helps us out on the apple podcast or wherever else you might find the sour hour last show we had the Rare Barrel staff on, which is always interesting. They have a good time. <laughs> that was a good time. It was, it was less meltdowny than uh, staff's past appearances. Less meltdowny and just a little harder to to coax it out, which I think yeah. I think relates to our new um, kind of midday start time. Sometimes, you know. Yeah, that didn't help. You know, normally we're starting somewhere in like the late afternoon, and then it goes into the evening. The sun is setting. The Pliny's flowing. Yeah. <laughs> But on this show, yeah, we started at like 11.57 a.m., and it yeah. wasn't quite the same, you know, vibe. It helps us. We love it. Yeah. Yes. And I think it allows Bevo to get here more. And, you know, like a day like today where we have, uh, you know, an East Coast guest, you know, they can get out of here uh, at a reasonable time. So that's good, too. Yeah. It, it makes us, like, inch toward the professional broadcast thing. Like, it's actually a real show starting at a real reasonable time. Yeah. And not just, like, an, a meltdown-induced 5 p.m. Pliny-fueled start time. For sure. Which is good for us, but perhaps not good for the—I don't really know, like, how the audience divides up. You know, I know some people like the, appreciate the meltdown. They love it. I know there's got to there's a segment of they're just like get to the info, and you know mm-hmm. we get it. You're drunk. Is it fifty fifty? Uh, I think for our listeners, no. You know, it's like our show, especially like compared to something like the session, is a lot more informational. I'd say you know, and then the session just kind of has a vibe. It's like put that on while you're home brewing, and right. you know, it's like more. Shitty. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, it's worse. <laughs> it's worse. It's worse than our show. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think we have the right amount. But uh, you know, yeah. a little less uh, craziness and maybe a little more information on the last TRB show. So check that out. You know, also one other thing that's coming up in the next uh, few weeks and maybe even when this episode drops, uh, it might be happening imminently. Really big event for both of us, Scott. Oh yes. Uh, you know, long time coming big personal moment in our lives that's right in, a, in almost about a month jay is re-signing his lease on his uh, yeah <laughs> talking about 
the Sarah Hour's five-year anniversary. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Crossing the five-year mark. Big news. Uh, Moscow's getting married. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what's going on. Do you have anything else new to report, Scott? I mean, geez, you know, given that I saw you two nights ago and yeah. recorded with you six and a half days ago. Yeah, I have a ton. Are you ready? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I don't want to talk to Jason. I, I want to drink Allagash beers. You know, I have to say, before we start here, I'm so excited to do this show, as I always am with Allagash. But mm-hmm. in particular, I, I don't know, is it just, I mean, they, they seem to be perpetually upping their game, which seems hard. They like continue to top themselves. The collaboration beer between Allagash and... We just went with Cezanne DuPont. DuPont. Uh, Brasserie that, DuPont. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. The, the, the DuPont uh, Allagash is the best beer I've had in... A long time. Wow. That beer is incredible. You drink my beer constantly. Oh, I, I chose my words carefully. <laughs> no, I mean, that beer was really just out of this world good, you know? And I mean, I, DuPont is one of my uh, go-tos, just a, a fabulous... I always love a Saison DuPont, but... And then that beer blew me away. It blew I, me away. I couldn't agree more. There's always, uh, you know, especially with these these little bottles that we've got in front of us, and they're, we're seeing them, you know, trickle out here to the West Coast more and more often, which is great. You know, I see some in the... Uh, Brewing Network Studios fridge out yeah. there that mm-hmm. looked very nice. So uh, you know, if, let's get let's just bring Jason on. Enough yapping about how great this brewery is. Let's talk to one of the guys who makes it great. Jason, how's it going, man? It's going great. It's going great. Great to talk to you guys. Happy to be on. Nice to have you back on the show. Been a few years. Yeah, glad. Definitely yeah, th- has been a while. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day. Um, for those who might not know as much as we do about you, why don't you describe maybe just your your typical day as, I think your title is brewmaster, if I'm not mistaken, but what, what does that mean, like a typical day at Allagash? Man, you know, there is honestly no such thing anymore these days. Like, it, it's every day seems to be its own little adventure, I guess, but... Um, yeah, it's a variety. Honestly, there's some days these days where uh, my whole uh, my whole day is uh, taken up with various meetings. Those aren't necessarily my favorite <laughs> days, but I do have some of those days. Um, but you know, I, I still you know I still oversee all of our kind of all of our brewery operations, if you will, here. So from you know ingredient selection to warehousing to brewing and selling and packaging and quality so it's it's pretty dynamic lots of different stuff every day uh you know i'm as far as hands-on stuff probably the stuff i'm the most hands-on with still the stuff that i'm the most reluctant to give up is a lot of the stuff to work with the wild and sour beers um so i still have my hands pretty pretty deep in that stuff so you know these days there's you know we're having really busy summer we got a can line that's way too small for our needs that's, that's <laughs> taking a lot of a strain on the staff uh and it's fruit season like that's and that's just a killer we we use pretty much uh ex- almost exclusively fresh fruit and almost exclusively from maine so just by the nature of our growing season it's basically july and august we just get hammered with lots of fruit so it ends up making for a pretty busy busy summer for sure yeah it sounds pretty busy and uh i guess sort of to, to scott's point uh, from before we brought you in, seems like there are always a lot of new and exciting things happening at Allagash. What are some of the things that really stick out to you as things you're that have either come out recently or you're looking forward to in the near future? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I mean, I'll have to just dovetail on the Dupont thing, which is you know was uh, earlier this year, uh, but I mean that was just it was such a crazy honor, and you know they reached out to us, they wanted to do something with us, and. Obviously, without even a moment's hesitation, we said yes. So, so we got to go over there and, and brew at that, you know, really historic facility over there, which is kind of an interesting place because it's got a combination of old and new, a fair bit of old equipment there and direct fire uh, kettles still, et cetera. But they've got some some investments they put in the facility in the last couple of years that have modernized it a little bit more. So, kind of a fun combination of the two, and just to be able to to, to work with those guys pitch yeast which you're basically doing by hand with a, with a stainless steel bucket uh you know the the historic saison defont yeast uh was just so much fun uh and then we were able to bring olivier their brewmaster here uh earlier this year to brew kind of another version different beer um but uh again another kind of collaboration with them which we just released around here which is, is just a limited release but uh that's been just a ton of fun being able to work with that super historic brewery um we've got a whole bunch of new beers coming out and we're you know i think like a lot of breweries these days you know we recognize that that's that's what the consumer wants these days and so luckily for us it's what we love to do as well so uh you know lots of you know in a given year 
you know, we could have as much as a hundred new beers. Now, a lot of those are really small releases in our tasting room, but, um, got a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. We're tomorrow packaging a beer called True Penny Pilsner, which is our kind of Allagash take on a Pilsner. You know, we've always been Belgian inspired. So it somehow felt a little bit like, you know, for us to do a Pilsner, we love a Pilsner as much as every brewer loves a Pilsner, right? So we, uh, did our own take on it. And so it's a, it's a co-fermentation Pilsner where we, ferment a portion of it with a lager yeast and a sm- much smaller portion of it with straight up Britannomyces and then blend the two uh, before packaging. So kind of get this very subtle Brett character, almost like the contribution it gives to the beer is almost like a, what a, a hop selection contribution would be, a subtle kind of tropical fruitiness that's kind of buried in the rest of the Pilsner character. So I'm personally pretty excited about that because, uh, you know, I love to crush Pilsners. Uh, and I love a little touch of Pretanomyces, so it's been a fun, fun project and uh, delicious beer. So those are just a few, but man, we got a, we got a lot of other fun stuff going on as well. I can see that some Brett character sort of taking the place of a Saz type character, like it, it, it lending itself really well to a Pilsner profile. Yeah, I mean, we didn't want to, you know, we did a similar beer actually last year that we just, and you, a handful of people might have been able to try. It was just draft only that was simply called Pilsner with Britannomyces. And that was a really nice beer. And a lot of people liked it, but it was, it was pretty intensely Brett. And that was more of a true co-fermentation, not two independent fermentations. And the Brett really does what Brett does and, and really took over and, and contributed. So it became really more of a Brett beer than a Pilsner. So. We kind of re- revamped it and changed the process around a little bit because the, really the intention was to, again, make that be uh, more of a subtle background character and really honor the, the crispness of a great Pilsner and not have, you know, kind of that funky breath take too much away from that. We did a similar beer, um, well, similar in that, you know, similar kind of inspiration earlier this year called Moselle that was a 60-40 blend of lager and Saison, same kind of idea. So, again, like making a nice drink in Saison, or lager with some Saison character. So it's fun working on those kind of hybrid projects. For sure. And you guys have so many beers you could probably just uh, almost like blend at the taps or, few, or you know, with a few bottles where – you know, with, with white and Saison and now, you know, some lagers, it's like, you know, if you just want a hint of some of these more intensely flavored beers, I find that that's really uh, kind of a good way to inspire yourself to get, you know, a crushable version of these, uh, these crazier projects that we all get into. And I, the, the Brett Pills is a beer style that I've always wanted to do. But one thing I've always been concerned about is um, perhaps like the different finishing gravities of those two components so you know maybe the lager yeast is going to finish with a little more uh residual sugar and then the brett beer might finish with a little less is that something that you know you can solve by blending and just keeping it on tap and small or do, do you package that and kind of monitor it over time yeah so it's a it's a great question it was really a big battle for with this beer to do it the way we wanted to end up doing and really having that subtle brett character with the first version that fills in with Britannomyces, we, we really just let the Brett do its thing. So we, we had long, like a, an even longer lagering period, if you will, where, where the Brett finished, got it to a stable density, and then we were comfortable with packaging it. But that was only in kegs. And, um, so that, you know, it gives us a little more flexibility there. We ran a bunch of trials and even did some one fully upsized batch we didn't even sell just to run trials on the second one. And in this case, with the, diff- the totally split fermentations, we ended up using basically, I, I don't want to call it sterile filtration because it's not quite that tight, but using um, some cartridge filtration to remove yeast, so to remove bread. So we, we basically are able to remove effectively all the Britannomyces from the bread portion. And, you know, to be honest with you, I struggled with that a little bit because it's a different approach than we do with other beers that have that degree of filtration. We've never really done any kind of true uh, that tight of filtration before, but I settled on it and we settled on it because it, it accomplished the goal that we were setting out to do. And again, this like subtle Brett character and we really wanted to, to, to capture it in time, you know, like Orval, one of my favorite beers in the world. One of the great things about that beer is, you know, the whole, uh, guess the date game, right? Like <laughs> don't look at the date, drink it, see if you can guess how old it is. Um, and I, I love that about it, but for this particular beer, we wanted to, kind of capture that Brett character and keep it where it was at packaging and hopefully it throughout its whole life. So uh, that was kind of our, our great, our, our good compromise. And then the volume we're using, it's only about 
eight percent of the overall brew so you know it's if we were to have to do filtration that tight on a large batch it would be really problematic and take a long time and be expensive and wasteful but in a small portion it's actually fairly manageable so we centrifuge it first to remove the majority of the Britannomyces and then follow that with a with a uh, tight uh, cartridge filtration wow interesting yeah not not something that all brewers can accomplish without that equipment but definitely uh, a novel approach and uh, yeah that sounds really good like a good taste in beer and got another good taste in beer here in front of us Scott we've got a James and Julie open sounds like uh, Jason might be opening a beer in the background too I hope I hope he is, is it, it's not the same one is it uh, I do have a James and Julie oh here. my god <laughs> clued in about what was what was being served here so wow I, I was ready. What an operation we run around here. Well, go ahead. Yeah, go, <laughs> go ahead and have a sip of that and then uh, walk us through. Um, you, know, you mentioned Orval. This this seems to borrow some uh, kind of classic uh, classic touches off of, uh, you know, the Belgian red brown beers. Yeah, it's really that's that's really kind of what it is. Is kind of, a, you know, we do we have two beers we make here. One kind of a classic interpretation of a, like a Flemish red, if you will. And that's called Helena. Uh, and then this one, James and Julie, is our kind of our take on a you know a, an oud bruin, uh, Flemish brown kind of thing. Both beers are pretty similar in process. The like, you know, grain bills are a little different, but this particular beer is is 100% stainless steel. Uh, it goes through normal fermentation, you know, in a normal conical fermenter with our house yeast. We actually use our house yeast, and but we ferment it at a at a, at a lower temperature, around 60 Fahrenheit. To reduce esters, just, you know, in a beer like this, we like to keep the esters a little bit lower. And then after post fermentation, it goes, uh, into our wild facility. Uh, we centrifuge out, uh, primary yeast strain and then add kind of our house culture of, uh, lacto and PDO. And then it's in stainless for, uh, oh, you know, about a year, um, uh, roughly. It's about a year total. So maybe, maybe 10, 11 months, uh, on the, on the bacteria. Uh, and then that's it, and we package it as is. So the version you have out there is just a straight-up punished brown, but it's also worth noting that both that beer and Helena get used in a in a lot of different other beers. Like, we use it as a, as if several different base beers you're using to play around with, and James and Julie is one of them where we uh, we use that to age, you know, in some fruit or some, in some uh, various uh, spirit barrels. Uh, one of my favorites is we make a beer called uh, nettles, which is this beer aged in some local um, rum barrels from a distillery just down the street from us. But yeah, just one of our core beers we tend to make every year, at least in some quantity, partially to do small releases of and partially because, you know, a good base beer. You know, this strikes me as brighter than, you know, one, one of the reasons I, I don't tend to gravitate toward uh, Udbrun styles, generally speaking, not that there are very many of them to choose from, is that they tend to kind of be, like, at least to this man's palate, a little sort of, like, muddy, you know? And this is brighter. Uh, you tell me if you think that's fair to say. But I wonder if that's because of the 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 lower ester profile of the base beer that you were describing. Like, do you, do you agree with the assessment? And, like, if so, you know, what, why do you think that is? I do agree with the assessment. I think it's probably a combination of the of the low ester fermentation and then the, the fact that it's 100% stainless. You know, there's there's certainly some plenty of oud burns out there that are uh, barrel-aged or fooder-aged, uh, which, you know, is going to add more oxidation, going to add um, other components to it, maybe good, maybe bad, but uh, I think that helps to keep it a little brighter and cleaner where it's 100% stainless throughout. Yeah, I, I might just add on to that where I think that prevention of... Um, oxidation and too too much ester profile could build on to what seems like like a cleaner malt profile. So it just seems less sweet, and that could be perception of sweetness from you can't get some some of that from oxidation. You can definitely get some of that perceived sweetness from you know high esters. But maybe this being all stainless helps with that. But I don't know. I'll ask you, Jason. Do you do you guys keep it pretty restrained on the malt bill front or is it um like a, a pretty traditional amount of like the kind of sweeter like crystal b and yeah i mean there's certainly some uh you know special b or uh, i think in this case it's actually uh pretty extra special there's some in there i honestly don't remember the percentage off the top of my head but mm-hmm. yeah it was a consideration with this beer to to make sure it's not too heavy um i i that's you know one of those classic belgian 
inspired flavors, the, the flavor you get from a, a malt like a special bee. But, you know, overdone can, can start to push, get a little muddy, a little metallic even. So we definitely keep that in mind when we're building that malt bill that we don't want to overdo it. Cool. Scott, you think it's time for a first break? All right, so we got a new beer open, but you'll have to wait and hear what it is until after a quick break. We'll be right back with Allagash. This is the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. This is Rob from Allagash Brewing. You are listening to the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. <laughs> Excellent timing. We're back. Sour Hour on the Brewing Network, as you just heard. I heard Rob's still around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's around. Right. Yeah, still does he, things. He, sh- he showed up to our Saison Day <laughs> in spirit at the Rare Barrel. Remember that, Aaron? We put up a little uh, picture of him, a little shrine. In spirit uh, last year and in person... Two years ago. Two years ago. And then Jason, last three... Yeah, two, yeah last year then. Two... Rob came three, first, yeah. then Jason, then Rob and Spirit. There we go. <laughs> Jason, I wonder why we can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a few ideas. <laughs> now, it's always great to host uh, anyone from Allagash. Great, great company and great people. And... Great beer, which we have another one open. This is the little. Do you guys go Sal or Saul? Sal, little Sal. Um, Jason, I don't know Sal. if you know this, but uh, you know Maine's known for their blueberries, and this beer has blueberries in it. Yes, it does. Can you tell us a little um, bit about this one? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so it's funny. I mean, blueberries are a funny thing because you know there's. Uh, I was actually really hesitant to use blueberries for years because there is kind of this. It seems so cliche, and and honestly, a lot of the the beers that are available in uh, Maine, not as much anymore, but you know, 15 years ago, that were blueberry beers were you know very clearly. Um, you know, extract driven, very like artificial blueberry aroma smelling. And, you know, we just didn't, we were kind of against it. And, you know, I, I may even been caught on, on, uh, on record saying we wouldn't do a blueberry beer. <laughs> Some of our staff gives me a little flack for that sometimes. But, uh, basically, honestly, what happened is a blueberry farmer who's not far from us, uh, just a few towns away came in and, and said, I got a bunch of blueberries. I'm growing my farm. Would you be interested in buying them? I know you buy other fruit. And I originally said, I don't know. And then he said, and I said, how much do you have? And he's a super small farmer. And he, I think he had, you know, 50 pounds or something like that. And I was like, you know, what's, what do I got to lose? Sure. We'll do a barrel. So I did, you know, one, one oak barrel full, um, and, uh, threw some base beer on top of them and, and, and loved it. Just loved the beer. It was received really well in the very limited places we were able to pour it on draft. And, um, it just became, you know, a fun thing for us to do. Uh, you know, blueberries are a funny fruit where, you know, they're very different than a cherry or a raspberry, especially, or even a peach, but cherries are probably the best example uh, of a, be- of, you have this ability for this, the fruit has this ability to stay in the beer for literally years, like an aroma and color, you know, you could pop a, a, a you know, a, say a, a creek from that's six or seven years old and it might still have this bright cherry aroma. It's pretty remarkable. Blueberries are very much not like that. And on the one hand, the vast majority of the classic aromas that you associate as a, as a consumer of, of blueberries, the fruit, with the fruit are, are gone uh, during the re-fermentation on the fruit. You know, early on in the process, you taste the beer in the first month or so, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like you could, I always say you could like spread it on pancakes. It's like lots of blueberry aroma and sweetness and whatever. But as the sugars get consumed, you know, a lot of those, other aroma compounds just are volatile and, and they're gone. So in the end, you get uh, in the beer, and we're adding uh, like three and a half pounds per gallon of blueberries to that beer, so pretty heavy amount. And you get in the in the finished beer, you, you certainly get this beautiful purple color, uh, and you get some uh, slight blueberry, classic blueberry aroma, but very little. Um, certainly some blueberry flavor in the finish. Um, there's uh, kind of a like a clovey smokiness that comes through, through from the fruit as well. So it's just, I think if, you, if somebody goes into this beer assuming that's going to taste like a fresh blueberry, it just doesn't, but it, it does add some really other cool, fun characters to the beer. 
Um, forgive the dumb elementary question. Do the blueberries just go in as is, or do you do you sort of mash them up first? We don't. We throw them in as is. Um, you know, we there. And I should also mention blue, the classic Maine blueberry. If, for those folks who don't know, is a, is a is a low bush, uh, like not even bush. It's like uh, the plant grows. Uh, uh, it's wild. You you can't plant the type of blueberries that are grown here in Maine. They have to be kind of allowed to expand uh, on the, the the land they're already in, and so they're very kind of they're they're found in Maine and a little bit of Canada, and they're li- little. They're the small uh, small uh, small fruit as opposed to the big ones, which are more commonly found. Those are like higher bush blueberries. And the flavor is different too, you know, more intense flavor in the smaller fruit, a little bit more tartness as well. Um, but they're, they're in, the skins are, you know, susceptible enough that we can, we can just throw them right into the beer. Uh, we do get them brought to us. Yeah. All blueberries have to, these kind of blueberries have to be raked to, to be harvested. So they're basically manual raked. Uh, so if they're sold in a grocery store, you know, that it's important for the farmer to preserve the perfect fruit so it looks good to the consumer we tell the farmers don't worry about that because it's going it's going in the beer right away we'll put it in the beer within with the same day it's picked so you know sometimes they come and they're they're already like what a normal consumer would call damaged but they're just they're kind of broken a little bit i would imagine the farmers use the same method to pick the blueberries no matter where they're going like what how does it change yeah, it's mo- with blueberries. It's mostly in the way they're transported. Um, you know, they have to be really careful when they trans. Like that's why you see blueberries in a store always in those little pints. Uh, if they put them in a larger container, like a five-gallon bucket, for example, they'll just get smushed, uh, and they'll we smash we don't other. care about that. So, and the same thing with with something like raspberries. Uh, we actually, the farmer we get raspberries from actually has this uh, semi-homemade uh, raspberry harvester that they basically only use for us, and then for one other customer who makes jam. Because, again, they can't pick the raspberry. They have to hand-pick the raspberries for the grocery stores and for the farmer's markets. But for us, um, they can bring us a five-gallon bucket that is 100% raspberries, but kind of a mix of what you'd expect to see in some really mashed-up, really raspberry juice, honestly. Yeah, we. I'll just add on to that. Uh, we did a collaboration beer with a company called Imperfect Produce. Oh, yeah. They've they, been on the session. They've been on the uh, Brewing Network. and. Mm-hmm. They essentially do what Jason is describing kind of in bulk. So they actually work with these farmers and find sources for the, you know, quote unquote damaged fruit. I mean, I've seen hundreds of pounds of this fruit. It looks absolutely fine. Maybe one out of every 20 is like, oh, I can understand what's wrong with this one. But most of them, they just look completely fine. And it's because Hmm. the grocery stores like just have such a high um, QC aesthetic, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, for QC. for visual aesthetics, yeah, it has a little, very little to do with you know how the quality of the fruit or anything. People just won't buy it if it looks wonky in any sure. way. Yeah, yeah. So we've done uh, some beers with them, and it's uh, it's pretty interesting. But uh, I, I love this beer. I love uh, the blueberry character in it. Blueberries to me have so many different flavors about them. Aaron and I were just talking about it uh, off air, where you know this gives me a lot of like. Vanilla, a little earthy, um, a little bit of uh, like a little kind of like savory in in a good way. And, you know, sometimes you buy blueberries and just inside of that little pint thing, you know, they taste way different. One can be very sweet. One can be very tart. And uh, this whole beer with the blueberries kind of gives me a little bit of everything without too much of anything. So I really, really enjoy that. There's also plenty of blueberry beers out here in California. We don't really let them, the blueberries boss us around like you, do, you guys do in Maine, but uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> this beer is still, uh, I think it's it's still worth a lot of the effort. And the base in this is the the red you were talking about before, right, Jason? Yeah, correct. Yep. So that's uh, the Helena is the base beer for that. Um, which is really similar to the James and Julie in a lot of ways, but one big difference is it is the, the portion of which is aged on, uh, or it goes through the souring process with the lacto and PDO blend is in a fooder. Um, so that kind of is, a, I guess, a shout out to the classic, the rodent box of the world, you know, fooder, fooder aged and fooder soured. For sure. And so, uh, in addition to, you know, Maine being famous for those blueberries, you mentioned that, you know, you try as much as possible to get, uh, local fruit and fruit from Maine that 
uh, you know, drives a lot of your program. What are some of the other kind of highlights for, for Maine fruit? So, you know, certainly we're famous for blueberries, uh, and those, you know, one of the bigger crops, uh, raspberries are, are grown here. They tend to, they can struggle, uh, with our winters being as cold as they are. It's kind of hit or miss. You know, we didn't get as much raspberries this year as we had hoped for, but, uh, we have a couple farmers we can pull from. Um, those are harvested. Uh, there's two different varieties. One's harvested in the summer and one in the fall. Gotcha. So we end up kind of using a mix of both, uh, depending on how the harvests are. Uh, cherries, uh, we get um, both Balaton and Montmorency cherries, but that's th- those aren't commonly grown here. We get almost all of them from one farm, and this farm we started working with to get cherries from them maybe 10 or 11 years ago, and they were uh, they were at the time, in, and basically more or less are, except for us, uh, a pick-your-own facility. So they uh, they you know kind of pride themselves on having fruit available of some type from June through October. Beautiful setting where families come out and pick, uh, you know, strawberries and cherries and peaches and apples and so on. Uh, but as our uh, interest in cherries grew, they also grew uh, their uh, orchard. So they keep adding more and more cherry trees every year, and we keep asking for more and more. So they're effectively our private cherry farmer these days. It seems like they, they just grow some beautiful fruit, and I really like the. I really like the combination of both Balaton and and Montmorency in a beer. Uh, we certainly use them independently in some beers, but uh, I really find you know the Montmorency for us is uh, really contributes a lot of kind of uh, cinnamon, all spicy type character to it. Uh, that's really interesting. And then the Balaton is deeper red color, kind of I guess you know classic pie cherry kind of aroma. And the, the two of them together, I find, is a really nice a nice blend. We do get some peaches as well. That's, again, like, you know, we, we have hit or miss years. We had a couple years ago where we uh, we didn't get a single peach. Uh, every single peach crop in the Northeast was lost. Was it weather-related? Uh, weather we, that that particular year was um, there was a big warm-up in, uh, around Valentine's Day in February, uh, and it wasn't just a single. You know, we'll get these random days where it might get in February might get to 50 or 60. Uh, we had like three or four days in a row. Uh, it may have been more than that where it was 50, 60 in February. Really odd. Very, very odd for me. Uh, and these trees said, Oh boy, it's springtime. Uh, oh, and man. actually started, started to, to, to butt out. And then it's not springtime. There's many more cold nights in March and April, even here. So, uh, yeah, they lost it. It was a particularly bad year for apples, but, for some reason, peaches were, were lost almost almost everywhere. Uh, you know, ironically, the only parts of New England that, that did have a little bit of peaches were way northern Maine, where it that warm-up didn't happen as much. So those trees, ironically, were the ones that uh, weathered it that year more than others. Gotcha. I was thinking as you are saying how unusual it is for February to be that warm in Maine, I looked over at Aaron and I was like, how did this guy get the California gig? <laughs> 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 I would like to add quickly, though, about the whole peach story, and I think this is very important for us and and true to the character of what Rob and what Jason have created is, uh, you know, we have these local farmers that we have great partnerships with, and the, the early frost came and destroyed kind of some of their harvest and probably really could have impacted the livelihoods of these farmers and their workers, and, and we reached out to them and helped them through their, their troubled times and, and made sure that they were able to, to get by even with the loss of their product and, and made sure that... We didn't outsource to, you know, Georgia peach farmers or anything like that. And we really wanted to stay true to our partnerships with our local community and our local farmers and uh, continue to make all our peach beers uh, with them instead of outsourcing somewhere else or anything like that. And what about when there was in that time when there was nothing, there were no peaches to buy from them? Did you just like get other crops and stuff? Like how did, how did you support other than sticking with them, you know, past that? Yeah, we did not make farm to face that year, which is probably our most popular, um, sour fruited beer at the time and probably still to this day. And, uh, I mean, Jason probably could tell you more about that, but it was really the peaches that were hurt, hurt the most. And we just made sure that, uh, we bought the rest of their crops from them. I think we gave them some down payments, uh, for future crops, um, with, with nothing in return for it. And, just wanted to make sure that, you know, the relationship we had with them could continue to thrive through the ups and the downs because we're all we're all looking out for one another. Mm-hmm. Yep. Allagash is good people. That's for damn sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I want to get to our 
show break, but... Oh, well, no, we got one more uh, uh, break Do break. We? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got one more segment on this one. That's true. Okay, then let's tease this out. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I'm a professional here, Scott. Uh, <laughs> because it's too bad, because we started to talk about, um, you know, all these different fruits, and Jason even dropped the pick your own. We're going to open a bottle of pick your own. Nice. And taste it right after a short break. You're listening to the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. New Belgium Brewing Company, and you are listening and learning from the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. All right. We're back. Jason and Aaron from Allagash. And we've got a, another great, great beer open. Speaking of cherries, strawberries, raspberries, and blueberries. Holy crow. This thing is amazing. It's great beer. We've got a uh, Pick your own open, and uh, Jason, I, I know you discussed uh, some of this in the last segment, but uh, I guess what what makes this beer kind of unique from your fruit sourcing perspective, and how do you come to a, a decision about these are the four fruits we're going to add to this beer? Yeah, so this this is again the same the same base beer um, uh, as Little Sal, uh, the Helena, you know, sour red beer, and we we started this as a five or six years ago with kind of the idea, okay, here we are, we're using, we already were using basically all these fruits and other beers. And, you know, what about using them all together in a beer? And, you know, a little bit like, you know, I would say the, the classic, uh, fruit pie that grandma used to make, if you will, you know, with uh, the medley of fruit, not just one fruit. Uh, it's kind of, I guess, somewhat the inspiration for this beer. But to start with, what we did is we just we just did uh, four individual oak barrels. Um, we don't typically fruit that often in oak barrels, but, you know, sometimes when it's a small-scale project, we will. And uh, we so we put uh, same base beer in four different barrels, with uh, cherries, strawberries, raspberries, and blueberries in each, each individual fruit and in each individual barrel. And the idea being like to see, let's almost like let's see, you know, how uh, the different character applied of these fruits apply to different uh, with the same base beer, et cetera. And then in the end, did some tabletop kind of bench top blending to decide what we wanted to do with it. And um, we found that we basically used all of the uh, cherry raspberry and blueberry barrels and then used the half of the strawberry barrel the strawberry uh, you know i'm sure you probably had some experience strawberry can be a finicky fruit to uh, to use so the character wasn't we didn't like a lot of that character you know some kind of heavy medicinal phenol thing going on and so we used a small portion of it and that was the first time this beer was released uh and then the following year we we basically kind of followed similar proportions uh, of fruit uh, concentration, if you will, in the final blend, uh, and did but did it all in a single tank. And you know, I was a little uh, interested to see if that would have the same effect. And we were still pretty happy with it in the end. So we've now made this a handful of times with that same kind of concentration of fruit that was determined in that bench top blend of the of the first round. Uh, you know, one of the challenges with this beer is the fruit is uh, harvested over roughly a month period of time. Strawberries first. Typically cherries, maybe sometimes raspberries, depending on the year, second and third, and then blueberries finally. We're just getting blueberries now. Uh, we got uh, a delivery this week, and we'll get in a little bit more next week. The challenge there is, you know, we have to kind of slowly uh, add the fruit. So we, we usually, you know, we have a tank full or a fooder full of base beer, and, you know, we start with strawberries, put a little bit of beer, a little bit of strawberries, and then the other fruit and keep adding adding fruit and adding base beer as we go. And then at the end, we'll, we'll do some kind of a uh, recirculation of the tank to kind of get everything somewhat mixed. But uh, it's a little bit of a pain uh, in that regard where we have to add the fruit over an extended period of time. Let me preface this by saying this beer smell, the aroma is significant strawberry. The flavor is overwhelming cherry, almost to the point where I don't know if you didn't know what else was in it, that you would even pick any, like you would just think it's a cherry beer. It has a lot of depth and complexity from so many different fruits. But you tell me, Jay, if that smells like strawberry, tastes like cherry. Yeah, fair, to, fair to say? You're wrong. <laughs> you, you don't get the same thing? It smells a lot like cherry to me. Um, hmm. And then maybe a little more cherry raspberry in the flavor. Um, mm. A lot of the things Jason was saying, I think it was about the Mount Morrency uh, 
cherries where uh, you get that like cinnamon kind of thing mm-hmm. i get a lot of that in the aroma but you know when you use this many different fruits it's it's of course open to interpretation but i don't know if uh if you if you have one of these jason or the last time you had it what you thought the dominant flavor was well, it just so happens that I'm drinking one right now. Oh, this is excellent. Um, Convenient. So how about that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I definitely get um, cherry, I guess, is the one that sticks out to me most in the aroma. But I, I definitely get some uh, raspberry notes in there as well. Mm, sounds like Jay would It right. smells like candy <laughs> strawberries to me. Oh, well, so, all right. Well, my question was, you know, given your description, uh, you know, and the finicky nature of strawberries, which, you know, brewers are, are familiar with, and how it came out for you guys, why did you include any in the blend? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, um, I, you know, I, it's so hard to really, um, honestly, it's, it's, and I think part of why the confusion or the difference in opinion, if you will, between, between uh, uh, what we're getting from this beer is, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure if you were to look at the actual aromatic compounds, uh, that are make up these fruits, there's gotta be tons of crossover, right? So there's certainly plenty of similarities, um, in the kind of compounds that these fruits are contributing to the beer. So it's really hard to really find the nuance from each, uh, each fruit's contribution in this beer. Uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's so mixed together. So, I mean, as, as, as stupid as this sounds, we, we add the strawberries because we did the first time and we like the character. <laughs> so, uh, I've just kind of continued down that road. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. What do you interpret that or what do you, uh, attribute that kind of weird strawberry character you get sometimes, which I get actually none of in this beer. Yeah, not um, at all. But what have you guys looked into that, or what, what are your thoughts on how brewers could troubleshoot that? Uh, you know, I, I don't have great answers other than I will say that an interesting thing we we personally and we haven't done like true, you know, peer reviewed research on this, but uh, variety of the strawberry does seem to make a difference. We we had the same farm we get some cherries from it. Just an interesting experience, uh, you know, a handful of years ago. And I think Aaron, you've actually even you visited the farm as well. And during strawberry harvest, you know, he, he had me come out one year and um, went like row by row. And he's got I forget how many varieties of strawberries he grows, but uh, you know, close to ten. And we just kind of grabbed the one strawberry, ate it, went to the next row, ate it, and. You know, I, I felt a little bit silly, but I, cause, you know, in my head, I was like, a strawberry is a strawberry, right? Like, <laughs> strawberries are strawberries, but a silly, like, uh, uh, an incorrect assumption. And, uh, especially when you're eating them side by side like that, the, the nuances and, and differences and not always subtle between varieties was, um, was pretty remarkable. So we found, uh, that playing around with a variety did, uh, did help. Uh, quite a bit. Uh, we just still don't use a lot of strawberries. The only other, the only beer we use it on the regular with is Avance, which is already a pretty, pretty big, complex beer as it is. It's a, effectively a Belgian quad that's aged in bourbon barrels and then goes through a souring process and then aged on strawberries in the end. And so, in that case, the strawberry character works. It kind of melds its way with the other complexity of flavors that are in there. We're also using it at a much lower rate. You know, I think we're more like, uh, you know, roughly a pound, maybe 1.2 pounds per gallon, as opposed to two pounds per gallon or more with a lot of other fruit. So those are kind of the ways we've worked around continuing to use them because, because we want to use them. It's a, it's another commonly grown fruit here in Maine. And, uh, so, and it's a nice way to support the farmers and it's fun to use something local. So, uh, those are kind of the ways we've figured out a way to use them in our beer. Awesome. Well, I want to briefly transition off of uh, fruit for a minute and maybe just get a, a little more of a technical overview of what is new for you guys. So, I mean, I'm sure you've been working with um, the same or similar cultures that you have for, for many years now. What, what's some of the advice you could give brewers with less experience, you know, maintaining their house cultures or developing these new brands over time? What are some like you know, yeast management tips you could give either some pro brewers out there that are listening or even home brewers. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we, um, we tend to try to keep it things as simple as we can here. You know, we're, uh, in the case of, uh, Britannomyces, we're, you know, we're, we're banking our strain, what we call our strain. We lovingly call Brett Michaels, you know, the strain we discovered years ago here. 
uh, we keep that banked and then, you know, we'll occasionally buy additional strains from, and right now we're growing our own internal bank, but they're just commercially available strains. And anytime we use those, it's a, it's a fresh propagation. And each one of those strains has their own kind of nuance to them in terms of how they like or don't like to grow. When it comes to the Lactopedio, uh, blend, we kind of settled on a blend that we really liked. And, um, we, we really have, two kind of techniques for you for inoculating beers and they honestly are fairly similar uh, in that one we have um uh, uh, an old grundy tank that we call our minion tank we even painted it to look like a little cartoon minion so looks like a minion although i was a little disappointed we we painted ours and then i went to new belgium and they have one in their lab too and i think they, i'm pretty sure they'd be pretty sure they beat us to it so i can't take credit Maybe or they or they copied. For, it. Was it of a minion? I don't think so. It wasn't I think, of a, they, I think we didn't copy them. We just think like. Wow. Oh, I think they. I think they copied you. That's an interesting coincidence. I think that was a direct quote from Jason Perkins. You Belgium copied <laughs> no. us. Uh, Headline. We we've we've copied them so many other times. You know, we might as well admit that we copied them again. So. Um, yeah. uh, so uh, we've got that tank that we kind of basically keep rolling all the time and as we deplete it we feed it back with fresh beer um we you know we're fortunate in that you know 80 percent of our production here is allagash white and allagash white just so happens to be uh, a nearly perfect uh stream to, to propagate anything with uh, you know roughly 20 ivus and five percent alcohol and um so it's 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 pretty nice uh thing to have at our whenever we need it so we'll refeed that tank anytime we deplete it and then we use that to inoculate so that's it, that's kind of our, our where we keep the culture kicking around but we're still also inoculating um new fooders or new tanks with existing fooder beer so old beer if you will so uh we just kind of it's given us success and you know uh it's not super scientific and and sophisticated but uh we believe in simplicity and it works pretty well for us I just want Jay to uh, imagine for one second. Okay, imagine your current operation, mm -hmm. but you also, oh, sold 40,000 barrels of your base beer last year. I'd be on my yacht. Retired now. <laughs> I'm just getting, what is the what is the number? Like, how many barrels of, of white was produced last year? Do you know? Um, it was probably closer to 60 or 70,000 barrels. <laughs> That's yeah. so good. I, to be honest, I I'm, I'm more interested in the, the steady stream of both wort and beer that could be used for inoculation. <laughs> the yeast, the yeast management dream there is like, it appeals to my brewer side um, a lot more. Yep. <laughs> totally. So I think one great thing about having that white on hand, you know, in either wort or beer format is that, is that 20 IBU going into these, uh, mixed culture prop tanks. Do you think that's gone a long way to help you control kind of the overall acidity in your, uh, sour and wild beer program? Or, you know, has the program ever got too sour for your liking? And then how did you combat that? Jay's asking uh, for yes, a friend. It, it <laughs> certainly has, friend. uh, in some cases, uh, not necessarily in the larger fooder beers, luckily, um, but in some of the individual barrel beer, we have certainly seen increased acidity beyond our liking. And, you know, we'll just manage that out by, you know, obviously not using that as a future inoculant. Uh, we, we haven't kind of gone back to a, I guess, if you will, pure original culture with that minion tank a few times. But it, I, I do think the, to your other question, I think it does. The 20 IBUs does kind of help to keep things at bay and to keep keep the the bacteria kind of happy and capable of, of dealing with IBUs at all. It doesn't tend to have too much trouble. I mean, most of the beers we're adding into are, are 20 IBUs or less as well, so it ends up being a pretty easy battle for them. And, Jay, you're more in like the 30 to 40 now, right? 25 to 30. Okay. Most, a little, little most higher. of our... Golden Sours, and that's worked like a charm. Yeah. But we also, we introduce all of our mixed culture later in the process. We dry beers out quite a bit in primary fermentation. We also invested a lot more in barrel treatment. Those are the big three for us. Um, and I'm not sure if I could attribute it, it. We did it kind of all at the same time because we were going up against like a mega culture. So I'm not sure I could say if one, you know, was better than the others, but certainly... Two are cheaper than <laughs> the other one, which was investing in the barrel treatment program was was 
pretty crazy expensive for us. What, how do you guys treat your barrels, Jason? If you're gonna, they're gonna be empty for I don't know more than a couple of days. What what's the treatment process like? Yeah, so all the barrels get um, pretty uh, rinse out. I'm spacing the name of the unit on the top of my head, but uh, you know it's effectively a, a 180 degree pressure washer. Pretty common out there. You, you probably know what it's called. I just can't remember off the top of my head what it's called. Yeah, the gamma jet, um, but we it's not the gamma jet. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's, it's got, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty robust cleaning and 180 degrees. So it's really kind of somewhat even scraping some of the inside of the the wood back a little bit, which is nice. So that's, that's, you know, that's for any barrel that gets emptied. We still do, uh, a fair bit of sulfuring barrels, which is not my favorite thing to do in the world, but we still do it because we just have these cycles of time. Um, and we try to manage as much as we can with, uh, you know, a lot of our barrels are cool ship barrels. So we try to manage it. And so only do, you know, empty barrels when it's close to the season. But in the end, our cool ship season is, is more or less just, uh, November and December. So inevitably we're going to have barrels that have to sit empty at some point in time. And so in that case, we're, we're sulfuring them. And then on a two to three month basis, those barrels, if for some reason they have to be empty for longer than that, they then get taken down, go through another kind of uh, cleaning and rehydration process, and then sulfur again. And you know, it's it's not ideal, but it, it works pretty well. Uh, with fooders, we we don't we don't leave them empty for more than a day or two. We learned the hard way that that can burn you. Uh, we had one one uh, very very leaky fooder on us that we unfortunately did not leak water it leaked beer for a long time so mm. that was uh, years ago and and so now everything's scheduled effectively so a fooder is only empty for you know maximum two or three days gotcha and just one one uh, quick clarifying question then we're actually going to get to our show break and bring, bring you right back for as much time as we have left of yours uh but you say sulfur what what form does the sulfur take for you guys we're using the sulfur discs, so you know, we're just lighting them on fire uh, and sticking them into the barrel in those little barrel baskets. So, gotcha. you know, honestly, the same way we've been doing it for, I don't know, whatever it's been, 15, 16, 17 years now, same way. We've always done it. Excellent. Well, uh, Jason, if you still have a little bit of time left, we'll bring you back after our quick show break. But uh, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. And thanks to Aaron for coming in studio. Just glad to be here. Uh, no thanks to Bevo, who didn't show up. Thanks for nothing, but Thanks Beav. to you, Scott. Thanks to <laughs> all the listeners. Thanks to all the sponsors of the Sour Hour. We appreciate your support. Coming right back with Allagash in a few moments. And more beer. And more beer. Until next time, stay sour. Stay sour.